Hello, friends, and welcome to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your conversational tour guide, taking you on auditory adventures for your mind, body, and soul. Or you can just call me your host. Regardless of what you call me, today's episode is a great one. We have Quinn Brett here, who just set a new record on the Tour Divide Classic route this year. But this wasn't a record to be beaten. This was one to be shared. Quinn traversed the entire 2,500-mile Great Divide route on her trike that was built by Reactive Adaptations, and they're based out of Crested Butte, Colorado. On this bike, she was able to complete the entire Tour Divide course and becoming the first adaptive hand cyclist to ever do this. But again, this wasn't about setting a record. This was about Quinn challenging herself, getting back into the outdoors, moving through nature, moving her body, and also being an example to others and showing other people with disabilities that the outdoors is accessible. And thanks to advances in technology, it seems like there are becoming fewer and fewer limits. Before becoming an adaptive hand cyclist, Quinn Brett was a professional big wall climber. She and her climbing partner set the speed climb record on the nose at El Capitan in 2012. And that was the beginning of a very prosperous climbing career that came to an abrupt end in 2017 when she fell from the nose of El Capitan. Uh, She fell about 120 feet, breaking her back, severing her spine, losing the loss of her legs, among many other injuries. And as she'll note in this episode, she's also lost her sense of smell. This is a truly powerful story, and I appreciate her coming on the podcast to share with us, and I hope that it is a good resource for other people who are facing challenges in their life, no matter how big or small, and just can't ever give up, you know? Just got to keep on pushing. I guess there's an old cliche that if there is a will, there is a way, and certainly this is a good example of that. And before we get to today's episode, let's give a special thanks to everybody who made this episode possible, starting with our newest sustaining patrons. This week's newest patrons are Joshua Perry, DeWitt Lunsford, Kyle Koch, Daniel Osman, and uh, just for fun, I thought I would look up our longest patron, And that distinction goes to Ryan McNabb. So thank you very much, Ryan McNabb. He has been a sustaining member of the Bikes for Death podcast since the very beginning. Let's see here. He signed up in November 11th, 2018, which I'm pretty sure was right around when the very first episode came out. So, uh, Man, thank you for uh, being along this journey with us for so long, Ryan. I just wanted to give you a special shout out and uh, really appreciate all the patrons who find it in their heart and in their wallets to step up and support this show and help make it possible. If you enjoy the show and like to help out, 
become a sustaining patron and get access to the Bikes for Death after party episodes. You can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Now today's episode is also brought to us by Quadlock and I got my friend Ben Moore here all the way from the UK to tell us some of the things he likes about Quadlock. Yeah, thanks for having me, Patrick. I want to ask you, man. So, I mean, downhill mountain biking, that's serious. And one thing people are always concerned about that I hear is, you know, is your phone safe while using on a bike in that manner? I've never had an issue. What about you? That is probably, as you say, the most popular question I get asked when it comes to this specific product. I crash a lot and we were just chatting about it. So two days ago, I had a big one. I was due a big crash. I haven't had a crash like this sort of size in a long time. Um, Let's just say over the bars, high speed. I I didn't get knocked out on this one. I thought I should have been. Um, I turn around, the bike's a bit of a mess. And there's the phone. It's still on the bars. And I, the only people that saw it were these four random guys that were in the forest that day. And we were joking about it, that the phone is still on the bike. And this is a prime example of how strong this product is. I mean, I, I race all of these downhill races. And for a lot of them, I'll just stick my phone on, even if it's in a shanty town in South America with you know all the steps and jumping off of people's houses. And the phone has never come off. I put my hand on my heart and say it's never come off. It's incredible. And that's why, obviously, at the end of the day, an iPhone's not cheap, as you know. You don't want to stick a thousand bucks worth of iPhone on your bars and find that it's pinged off after a couple of bumps. So I have a huge amount of faith that, yeah, I'm prepared to put money where my mouth is and have my iPhone there. I think your money is safe. I mean, I, I've been using Quadlog for a long time and never had an issue. Actually, my girlfriend just got pushed off the trail by an uh, electric scooter um, on one of her rides the other day. She actually got a concussion. The bike hit first and her quad lock and her phone took the brunt of it and phone, quad lock, it was all fine, but she got a concussion. So yeah, very tough products. Well, listen, dude, if people want to follow along some of your racing and what you got going on, where can people uh, follow you at? Yeah, I mean, over the years, I've done a lot on Facebook. So every race I do, you end up with a race run on Facebook and it's normally a minute or two long. So it's not... You know, it doesn't ever get too boring for the viewers. So yeah, find us on Facebook. Um, also got an Instagram and then uh, I'm flicking my way through that as uh, as time goes on. All right. Sounds good, man. Well, thanks for coming on and chatting Quadlock with us today. Thanks for having me, Patrick. All the best. All right. Take care, buddy. Cheers. Okay. And one more thing before we get to today's episode, I wanted to let y'all know about a new Bikes or Death affiliate program that we have been working very, very hard on. If you're an old schooler, you'll remember the good old days when we had an Amazon affiliate link and essentially everything that you bought through our Amazon affiliate would give Bikes or Death a little kickback. For reasons I still don't completely understand, that account and many other affiliate accounts were shut down. So we have created our own affiliate account program. Now, if you go over to bikesfordeath.com, you'll see an affiliate link at the very top. And we have partnered with a shit ton of different outdoor companies and brands like Patagonia, REI, Ombra's Sunglasses, Backcountry.com, and many, many more. So if y'all are, are wanting to help support Bikes or Death and you're looking to purchase something in the outdoor or cycling industry, 
Maybe check with our affiliate links first, bookmark those and try to use them every time you're making a purchase in the outdoors or bike industry and Bikes or Death will get a little bit of kickback and that will help to produce this show. So speaking of shows, why don't we get to today's episode with Quinn Brett? It's one I'm very much looking forward to and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. But first, let's have Miles Arbor kick it off with the Bikes or Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right, everybody. Well, today we have Quinn Brett joining us on the podcast. And uh, first of all, Quinn, I just wanted to congratulate you on becoming the first person to complete. Are, are we calling? Is it the Great Divide mountain bike route that you did? Essentially, because the Canadian border isn't open, so I think you did the Great Divide route. But it, you became the first person to complete that route on an adaptive bicycle. So, congratulations! Thank you. Yes. The first person that we know of anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll be interesting. You know, I hope, I mean, if somebody else has done it, maybe they'll uh, be like, hey, no, I'm, I'm out here too. <laughs> and I'm sure you'd be happy to have a, a friend and a compadre to, you know, be yeah. out there and know that, you know, you're out there in good company for sure. You were highly requested. Which is odd to me. <laughs> yeah, well, you were probably unknown, right, in the cycling world. Um, but I think that like outside magazine article that went out was pretty well received and I just saw linked in a lot of different places on social media and stuff like that and then I had quite a few people contact me directly and say hey we we need to have an interview with this person and so I really appreciate you coming on to share your story with my audience today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Again, my audience is cycling, but you had a whole other career in climbing before you got into your cycling career. I don't know what we're going to call it yet, but we'll we'll talk about that. But um, paint us a picture of your, you know, obviously my audience is cyclists. They may not be as familiar with the climbing world. Give us a snapshot, paint us a picture of, you know, your life as a climber. Hmm. Well, I... Grew up, I would say like my life as a climber was just because we traveled when I was a kid a lot uh, to different national parks. And so I just like went from hiking to scrambling to climbing. Um, and then I moved here to Estes Park, Colorado as soon as I graduated college and just really liked moving across the mountains and the earth. And in fact, when I first moved here, like I grew up in Minneapolis and I biked a lot, uh, mountain biked a lot. And when I first moved here to Estes Park, Colorado, I would bike more than I climbed just because like climbing was, it's definitely, you need partners and you need skills and you have to learn some shit. Uh, and you can go out and do it on your own, but it seems sketchier than like going out and biking on my own. So I actually biked a lot more when I first moved here, but then I started meeting climbers and then, uh, living in this town, like there's famous climbers that live here. So the bar was already kind of high, like Tommy Caldwell grew up here and lives here. And Josh Wharton is a famous alpinist and Paige Clausen, who is a female climber that is renowned for doing a whole bunch of cool stuff across the world. So there's 
people running around doing cool shit. And it was like, oh, well, I guess I should try to keep up. I don't know. That was just something my brain worked was this like they're doing that. I should try. What was your experience with climbing? I, you know, mentioned that you uh, spent a lot of time in national parks, outdoors growing up. What was your experience climbing before coming into Estes? Um, not much. Like my folks, I'm growing up in Minneapolis, I had been to Yosemite and I stared up at the big walls in Yosemite, but it was like in high school. And I remember telling my dad, I'm going to climb that one day. And so, yeah, I started scrambling and like being interested in climbing and they kind of, for some reason, I don't know why, like my parents weren't necessarily adventure thrill seeker folk. They placated my desire to learn and they bought me the John Long how to rock climb book for Christmas. And then they bought me a climbing rope for Christmas. And I still didn't have anybody to use these things with. So I read the book. Uh, and then in college, I met people who had a car because I didn't have a car or a license at the time. And I met people who would drive me to like Northern Minnesota and Taylor's Falls. And I could set up top ropes uh, given on what I read in the book. And so I was like, hey, folks, I know how to do this stuff. I read it in a book. We'll be fine. Uh, so that was the extent of like learning how to rock climb until I moved to Estes Park. And then people actually taught me how to rock climb. <laughs> yeah. So what was that education like thinking that you, yeah, you read some stuff in a book and you went out and tried a few things with your friends. And then you, like you mentioned, you're among the elite of the elite rock climbers. What was that education like? Did you advance quickly? Uh, yes and no. I had, I met when I first moved here, uh, there was just tons of people. And again, it, I just wanted to be outside playing. So it was like, whatever people are doing, if they're going biking, great. If they're going to play mini golf, great. But then I finally met a gentleman named Douglas Snively, who was a very famous rock climber in the 70s, famous in this area and famous in Yosemite too. And he just became a mentor of mine. We started going out like every Tuesday, we would call it Passive Gear Tuesday. And he would take me out to Lumpy Ridge in the backyard here of Estes Park and essentially hand me the trad rack. And then five eights, and he would just like sort the gear and I don't, just taught me how to do it. And he was so good at climbing, so efficient that I just learned from him how to like, when you get to the belay, next thing, like you're moving, there is no time for like chit chat. It's time to move. So I just learned, I, I learned from him and really gravitated towards his style of climbing. <laughs> when did you actually become a, I mean, if I read correctly, you were a, a sponsored professional rock climber. I mean, that's such a cool accomplishment to be able to, like you say, you just want to be outside moving through nature. You want to, and, and you found a way to turn something you're very passionate about, something you love and turn it into a career. How were you able to do that? Took a lot of years, obviously. And I didn't know, like in my twenties here in Estes Park, I was like, well, I like writing. I really like writing a lot, but who wants to read about me rock climbing? I'm a nobody. And so I never really got into that. And I was like, but I know I'm really, I'm really good at running. Like I swam growing up and I swam in college. Um, and so like endurance wise, I knew I was good at that, but I wasn't like a good technical climber quite yet. So I just didn't know what my niche was, but I knew I was like, I think there is one for me. And then in 2011, I went on my first expedition in Northern Canada to the Circle of the Unclimbables with some friends. And from there, I think I just dove in, like, you know, they, they say that thing about like your hundred thousandth hour or your 10,000th hour or whatever that is. Like, I think that kind of just, yeah, I think that just like was my tipping point, that trip. And then I met 
I started meeting people that were doing more ambitious things. Like my, this girl, Jess was like, I want to climb the nose in a day. And I was like, I want to do that. And we had never climbed together and we started talking and we started climbing in the spring. And then we went to Yosemite and climbed the nose in 14 hours. The very first time we'd climbed it together. And the second time we climbed it together, we broke the speed record on it, the female speed record. And so was that in 2012? Yeah, that was in June, 2012. And from there I was just like, oh, if I try harder, a little bit harder, like you can do some shit. Like, I want to start trying harder. (laughs) There's some real opportunity you felt like, because at this point you hadn't, I mean, you were enjoying it and you were pushing yourself, your personal boundaries, but it sounds like you, I mean, on 2012, you're like, okay, wait a second. I'm capable of more. Yeah. 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 I could step this up a couple of notches. (laughs) Yeah. And I totally like bit into that. Like, wow, there is a lot, like there's so much room for exploration. Like, holy crap. educate us. I'm, I'm a huge climbing fan, but not a climber myself. I've done a little bit. Um, but I live in Texas as we talked about, and, and, uh, you can relate to, there's not a lot of climbing opportunities, um, here. So help describe to people who maybe aren't familiar with climbing, like what is El Cap? And when you say you broke the speed record and you went in 14 hours, I mean, what does that actually mean? So El Capitan is the big giant feature Who's Star Trek guy? Kirk. Captain Kirk. Captain Kirk, man. He climbs out in one of the Star Trek movies. Oh, does he? I don't, <laughs> yeah. I don't watch Star Trek. <laughs> Back in the 80s, man. Like one of the movies. I missed it. Sorry. So it's a 3,000 foot sheer granite wall in Yosemite, California. And when the first climbers ascended it back in... God, I should know my history better. But I think it was the 70s. Jim Bridwell and gang climbed the nose, which is the route I was doing. So there's on this 3000 foot granite face, there's a whole bunch of different paths that you can take uh, that connects the features from the bottom to the top. And so this feature that I broke the speed record on is called the nose, which is essentially like when you look at the granite wall face on, it looks like the prow of the mountain. And the first folks that climbed that it took 50 days or 20 days or something. It took them multiple days and it still does for the average party to climb the nose. It would take two to four days. So you camp on the wall, you bring a big giant portal, portal edge, a big sleeping cot and a hall bag filled with gear and another vessel to carry your poop off the mountain and you poop in it. So to do it in a day has become, I would say since like two early 2000s, it started becoming like a thing that people wanted to climb it in a day. Hans Florin is a big name for setting the tone for that. And it's 33 pitches. So about a hundred, hundred feet a pitch. Um, so to do it in 14 hours, was a pretty good feat. And at the time, the female record in comparison, the time, the female record was 12 hours and had been standing for 12 hours for golly, 10 years. And it's just because the females weren't, there weren't like groups of females giving her. Whereas the male record was at that time, I think already down to three hours or two hours because the male groups were like given or given or given her. Yeah. Well, there's some great uh, videos that have been documented with the race up L cap and the, I mean, high level of competition that was going on for that speed record. And maybe for people who aren't familiar with that, I mean, you can easily find lots of great videos and stuff about 
you know, exactly what you're talking about. And it, it really puts it in perspective. I mean, once you understand some of the risk uh, that you have to take, whereas, you know, a lot of people you say they're, they're going to portal edge and they're going to take maybe a couple of days to get up. Well, to get up quickly, you have to go light and you have to have less pitches, right? You're still using a rope. Like there is that movie Alex, that Alex Honnold is in called Free Solo. And that's where he's not using any climbing gear except for the shoes on his feet and a chalk bag on his back. So speed records, you still have a rope between the two climbers. You still have gear between the two climbers. But the point is, so like how my girlfriend and I would climb it, we would climb it in two pitches, essentially. Like I would lead from the base and you just, I carry like 30 camelots with me, which are pieces of gear that you plug into the cracks, the natural fissures of the crack. I plug those in and I clip the rope to it. And then we just keep moving, moving, moving. As she climbs past that piece of gear, she unclips the rope and takes the piece of gear and puts it on her harness. So we're just moving efficiently together. And then we get to a point like 1500 feet up where I've run out of gear and she's got it all on her. And then we switch. So now she's got all the gear. So she leads the top half of the mountain and I follow behind her. So is the idea that you're kind of giving some rest and recovery to your partner and you're just switching a little bit of the. Yeah. Like to be in the back end is like, you still have to be quite on it. Cause if you fall, like you're going to pull the leader off the mountain, but you do have that system in place, the rope and the gear to stop both of you from having catastrophic falls in most instances. <laughs> <laughs> in most instances. <laughs> well, that's a good segue. I, let's so, you know, 2012, you set the Alcap speed record actually in 2012. Was that your goal or were you just going out there to push it and, I mean, what was your goal in 2012? Yeah, that was a goal. Like my girlfriend, Jess, uh, she had climbed it in a day with her partner in the fall before. And then I was like, hey, like this record, I worked for a small guide company here in Estes Park. And we had a picture of Heidi Wirtz and Vera, Vera Schultz. And they were the two women that had had the speed record for 10 years. And we just had a picture of up up there. And I was finally like, Jess, like, no, I haven't even heard any news of anyone even attempting this. Like you climbed it in a day. Let's like, let's go see if we can. Like I'm a pretty efficient climber. Douglas taught me how to do that. Let's go see if we can. And we did. <laughs> and we did. What happened after that? Uh, both with, with you and also with maybe the women's speed climbing record, did that accelerate some interest in that and some competition along the way? It did. A good girlfriend of mine, Libby, who we were acquaintances at the time. Well, we, Jess and I had broke the speed record like that same week she had a fall higher up into Wallamy Meadows in Yosemite. And like, just, I was hiking and some talus like rolled over her ankle and broke her ankle pretty badly, but she was intending on going for the speed record that fall. And so the following spring, a partner replaced her and two women, Mayan and um, Chantel went for it. And yeah, it started kind of a little friendly rivalry amongst the women, like which had been happening with the men for years and years and years. Well, iron sharpens iron. It's always good to have competition, you know? <laughs> I agree. Like just even when we, after we had broken the speed record immediately, just is like, we should go back and do it, do it again. Like in that same trip. And I was adverse to that at the time. I was like, no, we like, we have the speed record now. Like we don't need to prove ourselves again on this thing. Like let's go do a speed record on another mountain. Like, because there are so many other mountains in this Valley that could use a female ascent. Let's go attempt that. And then we can like, yeah, if time avails and we need to return to this to prove ourselves or whatever, we can try. Your accident that took place in 2017, it happened on El Capitan? Yep, that exact same route. Exact same route. 
what was the progression between 2012 to 2017? You know, in 2017, how were your goals different maybe than in 2012? I mean, a lot of time has passed. I'm guessing you've got some more climbing under your belt. <laughs> I got a bit more climbing under my belt. My goals got bigger and bigger. I had climbed with Libby, who who currently has the speed record on the nose. Her and I became more than acquaintances. We've become really good friends by this time. And in 2014, her and I met in Yosemite Valley, and we were the first two females, female team to climb two routes on El Capitan in a day. So we climbed the nose and looking fear. So we climbed 5,500 feet of granite in less than 24 hours. Um, and then another girlfriend and I, Josie, uh, who I'd met down in Argentina doing some big mountain climbing down there. Um, her and I in 2016, all the odd years or the even years or the good years, apparently 2017 was <laughs> to be a bad year. You figured that out too late, huh? Fuck, I know. I should have been climbing there in 2017. Sorry for the swearing. Can I swear? Yeah, no. Cursing is definitely allowed. It's encouraged. Bring it on. It's encouraged. Okay, great. Because I like to drop F-bombs. Yeah, please. Uh, so tw 2016, my girlfriend Josie and I, who we had done a big endeavor in 2016 called Seven Walls in Seven Days, which to me was something I'd been scheming for a long time, but never found. I asked Libby and she was like, yeah, I wasn't, didn't find a partner that was like psyched to say yes. So Seven Walls in Seven Days is essential climbing. There are in one of the old guidebooks in Yosemite, there are eight big walls in Yosemite. Uh, and one of them is closed to raptors because of the season. So I was like, well, it'd be really cool. To Sorry, climb. you said raptors? Yeah, like, uh, yeah, falcons, like falcon nesting and that kind of stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was like, well, like, it seems nice to do a wall a day, like in a week. Um, and so... I schemed this and I had drawn out all the, like this giant blueprint. And I just couldn't find a girlfriend that was that enthused to say yes until Josie was like, sure. So in 2016, uh, Josie and I did that. And that was a really cool endeavor because sure. I'd been doing all these like female speed record stuff, but seven walls in seven days was something that nobody had done yet. People, two male guys had climbed seven walls on El Capitan in a week, but to climb seven walls in Yosemite Valley means like you have to hike because some of them are bushwhacky. It's not an easy task. Like it was my perfect, like I like to move all day, every day. Cause I'm a spaz. So let's go hike as much as we can and climb as much as we can within a week. And we were successful in that. <laughs> That's awesome. It reminds me a little bit of what, I think it was Honold and Caldwell that did uh, a route where they used a mountain bike to link up different climbs and in a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Which Josie and I kind of did on that endeavor. And that was another endeavor that, so when I fell in 2017, what we were doing, we weren't necessarily trying to break the speed record again on the nose in particular, but we were going for that endeavor that Tommy and Alex had gone for. It's called the triple crown in Yosemite and it's to climb El Capitan, Half Dome and Watkins, the three biggest big walls in Yosemite in under 24 hours. And I wasn't sure that Josie and I could do it in under 24 hours, but I was certain we could do it in under 30. And so we needed, we needed to climb, be able to climb consistently the nose in six hours. And we, and so that's what we were doing that day was like, how fast can we do this? And can we, can, do we feel confident and consistent about our, our time? So when you talk about these times, the time, does it include your time on the wall and your time getting to the next Kind of like, so the time on the wall, I was hoping that would be under six and then an hour off 
and then an hour to transit to the next. So I was like offering like two hours to our, yeah. And then half dome would, would have been a faster one, but yeah. So trying to, and you bike in between or whatever you can like self-supported. Yeah. So 24 hours is including from when you start at the very base of one to when you finish at the top of all of it. So solo self-supported is a phrase that my audience will be familiar with and you will be as a, a you know, person that just did the tour divide. Is this a common ethos and a principle in climbing that these records are done on your own? There's no outside assistance or anything like that. Yeah. Like you want to try to do it in the purest style that you can just like with rock climbing, there's traditional climbing, which is when you plug the gear in and you climb and you are just using that gear as protection. Like, just like if you carry your Garmin device, you call just in case you have an emergency, you can call, but then there's like French freeing, which is like, maybe that's when you're like actually using your Garmin and you're ordering the pizza along the way to be ready. So French freeing is like putting those camelots into the crack, but pulling on them. Like, yeah, you can put your hand in the crack. You can pull on the gear, like do whatever's necessary to move the most fast. Uh, and so speed climbing generally is using that method. Like whatever is the most efficient method of getting up. So this, when you had your fall, were you practicing for your run or were you on your run of the triple crown? No, we were practicing for it. And I, I did say to my climbing partner that day, I'd want, I wanted to give her cause I wanted to set a tone of like, Hey, I know that we have done this many a times, but like, I just want to see what our potential is. It wasn't to go. We definitely had no plans on moving on to a second mountain that day, but I wanted to see like, how close could we actually get to the speed record? Like maybe the current female speed record, which is now Libby and mine have dwindled it down to four hours and 43 minutes, I think, which is, it's insane. Um, I wanted to see how, (laughs) I mean, that's really, really impressive. I mean, it, it deserves some acknowledgement. That's really impressive. It does. So I wanted to see if Josie and I could get close to that. Like we had Josie and I'd climbed. I mean, now like Libby and I'd climbed it in eight hours and I'd climbed it with Josie in seven hours. So like that 10 hour speed record that I'd set years and years ago, like that, yeah, that was small potatoes. Like now the average time to climb it for me was like in a decent day was, I would, I don't want to say casual, but like feeling confident I could climb it in seven or eight hours. And so I was like, Josie, let's, let's give her today and see if we can get like under fives <laughs> or around six, you know? <laughs> so take us through the day. I mean, I, I, we talked before and you said you were comfortable talking about it, but what happened? I'm, I mean, was it, was the climb going well? What happened? Yeah, the climb was going really well. In fact, um, the week was kind of a weird week. Like I had left Estes Park here cause my relationship was on the rock. So like Mentally, I was just in that weird headspace of like, what am I doing? And then arrived in Yosemite with some girlfriends, which is what I wanted and what I needed. But I also had in the back of my brain, like Libby and I were supposed to, we had a pretty big winter of adventures. We were going to go attempt a big speed run on Aconcagua. And so I kind of felt conflicted in that I I should have been like, doing back to the running endeavors. I shouldn't necessarily be climbing, but I really wanted to just be with my girlfriends and be in a good headspace. And then on Sunday evening, so I think it was October 10th or October. No, that was like October 8th or 9th. We got news of our, of a friend Hayden and his girlfriend Ingi having passed away on in an avalanche. And Hayden was a prolific climber in the community in Yosemite in Patagonia, like a really well-known name and just an outstanding human. And his dad was well-known 
Um, so to hear of their passing, it kind of kind of gave a weird tone to Yosemite Valley at the time. And so Josie and I necessarily weren't necessarily like in the best of head spaces, but we had made plans to climb on this Wednesday. And so we woke up in the morning and she in fact came out to wake me up and was like, Hey, I didn't sleep very well. Um, can we sleep for another hour or two and then check it out? And so we did. And then we finally arrived to Yosemite Valley at like nine or 10 in the morning and started up the route that we said we were going to climb. And that's when I told her at the base, like, Hey, I still want to try to give her today. So let's try to like put her head down. And I was moving like I, we passed some gentlemen on Dolt tower, which is maybe a thousand feet up. So I'd been leading this whole entire way and I, they handed me some water or a donut or something. And I smiled and ate it as I passed. And then Josie came up and was like, it's hard keeping up with her. Like we were moving. Um, and time-wise, like I was, I checked my watch right before the very last pitch. So right before the last hundred feet and right before I fell, I checked my watch and I think I was at two hours and two minutes of climbing. So I was like, if we split this in half, if I finish this pitch in two and a half hours, even liberally, like if Josie climbs her half in two and a half hours, then we'll be at a five hour pace, which is pretty fucking fast. So I looked at my watch at that. There's a lovely little stance. You stand on a flake called Texas flake. And I was standing there and I like flicked the rope around and was managing some stuff. I looked at my cell phone because I had some gear notes of what this particular last pitch involves. It involves a bolt ladder. So you clip hardware that's already, that's always in the rock. You clip that and then you have to do a couple funky gear placements and then you get into this hand crack. And so I did all of that and I got into the hand crack and Josie arrived to put me on belay at that ledge below and the rope for her got tangled and she hollered up to me. I can't put you on belay yet because the rope's all tangled. And I muttered something of like, doesn't matter. I don't have any fucking gear in it anyway, because the tactic is generally you, in order to do this pitch really fast, the method is yes, you can place gear, but you want to take it with you. So that way Josie doesn't climb this pitch at all. In fact, because you do this giant pendulum, she does a giant pendulum off the ledge that she's currently standing on. Yeah. I've seen that move. I know what you're talking about. The king swing. It's called. The king yeah. swing. Yeah. And I generally do place gear there. I place two pieces of gear and move it through, but I don't know. I was just in that weird headspace. Like I actually thought about Hayden in a, in a move. And I had, I got grumpy all of a sudden and yeah, to say like, it doesn't matter, Josie, I don't have any fucking gear in anyway. That's not like a good, that's not what you say when you're having fun. And I re I remember my hand, my right hand was in the crack and my left hand kind of searched around on my right hip, reaching across me, looking for a certain size Camelot, like a, a they're color coded. So I was looking for a blue one or a, or a gold one. Um, and I didn't see it. And then the next thing I knew, I saw granite swooshing in front of me. And then I remember the next thing I know, I remember I waking up in the space between El Capitan and that giant Texas flake. So I had fallen in this raw space. There was like a two, a two foot gap from the actual granite wall in this flake. Um, and it was later found out, yeah, I took like 120 foot fall. I hit that flake. I think with my shoulder blade and back, my helmet flung off. And then I actually tumbled forward and landed in the rubble. Like, so I had two pretty big bruises on my thighs and pretty big bruises on my head and a big laceration on the back of my head because my helmet fell off. And then I also don't have a sense of smell. <laughs> <laughs> 
Along with my other injury of now being paralyzed. Yeah, yeah. Down. Oh, yeah. And by the way, also paralyzed. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. One question. If you didn't hit that outcropping of two and a half feet, you'd be okay? Like, conceivably? Yeah, I mean, like, right. Like, there's that movie of Tommy and Alex doing the speed record on the nose, and they take 100 foot falls. But it, that flake just, uh, that was like the spot you don't want to fall. Oh my gosh. Yep. I've thought about this question a little bit and let's see if I can ask it well enough. <laughs> I mentioned that I'm a, a fan of climbing. I, I just love to watch all the videos and I really appreciate the sport and the, the pureness of it, as you said so much. But as I've watched, I've noticed that injury is a part of it. Death is uh, a, a part of it. I mean, potentially, um, and, and that every climber has to have its own, their own relationship with the risk tolerance that they're willing to take. I'm curious what kind of conversations you had with yourself or with friends about the risk of the sport that you were involved in prior to your crash and how that might, how you might relate to that perspective now. You know, no, that's a great because I reflect on that a lot. And I reflect on that a lot now because when just what you just said about with like this sport, and it makes me think about my mountain biking and being at Craig hospital and in the spinal cord injury ward there, I don't want to freak mountain bikers out, but there are a lot of people who are, have a spinal cord injury because of mountain biking. Whereas with climbing, I have a lot of friends who are dead. So the consequences for me in thinking in the past, you know, about this sport. Like I was in Greenland on an expedition in 2013 and a man I was dating at the time died climbing back here in the United States. And when I was on the top of Fitzroy in Argentina, six of us summited the mountain and four of us repelled one way two repelled a different way. And the two that repelled, one of them got hit with a rock in the head and died. Like in my scope, I guess it was I was very aware that death was a possibility and I teach, I'm an EMT. I teach EMTs like emergency medicine and I'm very well aware of spinal cord injury, but for some reason, and I think this is, this is my personal ownership of it. Uh, my naivety was it's either death or death or it wasn't. And I guess I never thought about the actual, what if I had a spinal cord injury? That never crossed my mind. Death crossed my mind for sure. That's why I wasn't too worried about asking you that question. I, I feel like you can't do what you did without having that conversation with yourself and probably your friends over campfires. It's a reality of the sport that there's some high, it's a high risk and high consequences type thing that you're doing. And so the thought is, right, is going into it, it has to be worth it. It has to be worth the potential risk or else you wouldn't do it. Right. Sure. But how often are we as humans actually weighing the potential? Like every time we get in a car, yeah, that's like also where a lot of spinal cord injuries are and death. Like, are we weighing that potential when we're texting somebody and we're driving at the same time? Probably not. <laughs> don't text. And drive. Please don't do that. But I think that's a great perspective. You can't, and, and I mean, you know, cycling, I don't think is quite as da dangerous. I mean, there are a lot of injuries, but I think the, it's not like 
cycling and death. It's bikes or death. <laughs> yeah, right. Here's my podcast, though. Shit. Yeah. God damn. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, you might get injured, but uh, but death isn't. I've talked to cyclists that have been injured before. Blah blah blah. But it's not that. Okay. Well, it's uh, the consequences are are quite as high. Yeah, as a climber, I was like thinking I can I can mitigate death. Like I can be more safe with how I, like I can back off this pitch or I can say no, just like avalanche hazard. You can say no, but then there's shit happens. Well, let's move on to your recovery, if that's okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know how to pie happy happy bow on on that one, but uh, I mean, you're you're still here and you're still moving and still grooving and still doing doing badass shit. So. I think there's hopefully uh, some silver lining, but you have a background in like I don't know exactly what it's called, but wilderness survival, out uh, backcountry rescue. You said you were an EMT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked as a climbing ranger. Cl- yeah, I mean you and you rescued people from the exact same types of situations that you were in. I forgot to ask this question, but my question was like, how aware of you of how fucked you were sitting on that cliff like what was it like to have all that body of information as a person who usually recovers somebody and now you're that person yeah like that was exactly to my phrase so Josie my climbing partner also so I worked search and rescue in Rocky Mountain National Park as one in five climbing rangers Um, and Josie had worked search and rescue in Yosemite as this same thing doing technical search and rescue yeah you help people with sprained ankles and such but our forte is rescuing people on the side of mountains, just as I was now a thousand feet up on the side of a mountain. Uh, and I do remember coming to, and I think my phrase to Josie was, I fucked up uh, and I can't feel the, my bottom half. And of course, her concern as a rescuer was she, you know, I fell face forward. So getting an airway is the most imperative thing for me. So I was unconscious and she had to roll me over, which I think that still gives her pause of whether or not she caused more damage to me, which as EMTs, we know, like rolling me over did not cause the damage to my spinal cord. 120 foot fall into a giant granite wall caused my spinal cord damage. Well, plus she needed to make sure you could breathe, which was also very important. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Thank you. But yeah, that was pretty wild. Like I was staying at a search and rescue member's house when I was in Yosemite, I got flown off the mountain and you get flown down into a meadow Um, Because Yosemite has their own helicopter, but it stays within the national park. And so they wanted to transfer me to another helicopter and all the rescuers down in the meadow, like all hundred of them. uh, One of them at the bottom right of the litter is that guy's house I was staying at. And he was like, Quinn, we're transferring you. And I said, but I can't afford that because I also (laughs) knew like how much the healthcare system was going to suck my money dry. Yeah, but how, yeah, that it is wild. It looked like, and I knew who was helping me and I knew that they had pushed the limits themselves because as rescuers, that's what we do. Uh, and because they knew it was me stuck on the mountain, like it was too, wind, it was a, too windy to fly a helicopter, but that day they flew the helicopter. Were you aware, were you conscious when this was going on? Mildly, I like to talk like now it's a distant, distant dream of like talking to Josie while I was just coming cognizant and telling her I fucked up and telling Bud that. And when I arrived in the middle, aware like there's a picture of me holding on to the like getting flown off the mountain and holding on to the litter so I definitely was like caught awake but that's yeah it's like a weird dream now I imagine (laughs) well then let's fast forward to 
what your recovery process was like and maybe you could you're a really honest person i think from what i can gather from <laughs> looking researching you on uh, instagram and the internet and stuff like that and i really appreciate honesty and I, i'm wondering like what was it like to i don't know come to terms with this new life or uh, how quickly did you even learn that you had lost you know the the use of your legs and all that uh shitty and it's still shitty there's the shitty and awesome uh but in the beginning it was shitty shitty and shitty and the phases of grief are they're like they're not phases they're always there somebody told me that it's like the giant sack of presents that santa claus carries on his back but the sack has a hole in it and sometimes the denial falls out and sometimes bargaining falls out and you just put it back in and yeah. So like that happens. And I've said this a few times on a different podcasts of like the space between tears for me has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, but golly, I remember like, so I was injured October 17, 20, October 11, 2017. And I remember calling a girlfriend in 2018, July 4th and sitting in the shower crying and calling her. And like, she was like, do do I need to come over? Like, is this end of life something or other? Like, are you suicidal? And I was like, no, I don't have a plan, but I don't want to be here. Like this sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that's an honest, I can't, you know, being able to climb El Cap and doing all these things you did and now having to come up with a new perspective, a new hobby. I mean, all, all the things. And a new know? identity. A new like identity, identity, yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah. Like I was, con- I, and I still am very much so connected to being a mover. Like, even on this hand cycle trip, like I, f- I finally had a moment of revelation, like this wheelchair doesn't f- define me. And that was huge. And that moment came because I was sleeping in my van every day after biking a hundred miles every day. And I slept and that's what I needed before. Like in order to sleep, I, or yeah, I needed to move 12 hours a day. And right now I have nerve pain and I'm not moving 12 hours a day. And so the first three years of this injury have been a shit show. Like, how can, how can I get some quality sleep? Well, quality sleep affects my nerve pain. If I don't get quality sleep, then I have higher nerve pain. If I have higher nerve pain, then I, I'm an angry human and I'm just not pleasant to be around and I don't want to be here. And I, how do I move and how do I do things independently? Like it's this whole shit show of like, you're, you're an infant. You have to learn how to pee and poop again. And you also are old because you're looked down upon and, People are like, oh, it's just so nice to see you out. I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna lay in bed all fucking day. <laughs> oh my gosh. What uh I mean, you have a, a master's in psychology. Is there anything that you can speak to that has helped you endure this from a mental I mean, the physical aspects are ongoing, obviously. And I mean, I mean, your loss of legs, your the pain that you feel, it's something that you deal with, but I mean, you have to be okay mentally, I would think. That's that's where you really need to be okay and find a way to be okay. Can you speak to your process there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's where I think there's some irony in my life in that. So I started a company called Dovetail Mountain Adventures in 2010. And my focus was essentially fear. Like my background in psychology um, and my experience with rock climbing was like, well, I have fear. Like as rock climbers, we all have fear. Like it's the fear of falling. So I'm going to try harder and be like, oh, gripped on the mountain because I don't want to fall. But if you can find comfort in that uncomfortable space and the same, and then translating that, like for me, it was translating that experience that I noticed with climbing 
into my personal relationships, like having vulnerable and difficult conversations, it's fearful or shameful for people. And so I found this space that seemed relatable to folks and doing yoga poses, like just doing yoga. But when you're doing these balance poses or these inversions for folks, for everyone, it's difficult. And holding a pose, like to hold warrior pose for five minutes, that hurts. It's uncomfortable. So essentially I made this translation of like finding comfort in uncomfortable spaces. And that has become really all the time physically. Yes. With pain and sitting, but mentally also with being less capable and feeling like a burden. And so finding any moment or minuscule space of comfort in that uncomfortableness is huge with moving forward. What has kept you going? Um, did you try other modalities of transportation before the bike? When, when did the bike kind of come on the radar? And <laughs> I have to imagine that just being active and being outside again has to help, you know, it's like, okay, I can still, you know, there's parts of there and I'm going to put them back together and I'm going to go and I'm going to do it. You know, when did you kind of get some more, uh, opportunities or these ideas that there's other modalities of going outside? Pretty quickly, like my buddy, Justin Dubois, who you should have on this podcast also, he was pretty close to setting the tour divide and he had, he had like the Colorado trip. I don't know. He he's really good at biking. Yeah. Uh, I know Justin. He has a podcast too. Yeah. Yeah. The desolationist. He, well, he found reactive adaptations. He's the manufacturer of the hand cycle that I use. And he ordered me one in February. So like four months after my injury and like sent me a picture and he's like, this, you need this. And I was like, okay, cool. And it finally arrived in July or August of 2018. And I, I specifically ordered it without a battery because I was like, I don't need that shit. The purest in me is like, I can fucking do it. But then I went on a trail, like a one mile trail that I would run in, like a trail that I would do like tempo runs on. And it took me 40 minutes to get a half mile up the trail. And so when I first got these hand cycle, I was like, this sucks. I don't really want to do this. And then so finally, and like, I'm going to get the battery. Like he sells them with batteries. Why not? Let's, let's get a motor on this thing. And I got the motor on it. And I was like, oh shit. Now I can a keep up with my friends. Like Justin and I can go on a bike ride, but B I can do some cool technical stuff and not be exhausted for the rest of the day. Cause I have to transfer into my car and use my arms to try to take a shower using my arms, like using my arms for everything. So when I got the, the motor on it in 2019, that's when I was like, okay. So let's talk a little bit about the bike itself. And I'm hoping other people who may uh, have disabilities might find some usefulness in this, but describe the bike and help me understand. I think through reading that they've figured out how with the motor to convert it to like leg power in some way. Can you describe that better for me? <laughs> I don't know about the leg power thing yet, but I did see on orange bike the other day, they have made a two wheeled bike, essentially a three wheeled bike, which that's a whole new fiasco. Um, but my bike or trike as it should be called, I guess. So it's a three wheeled thing. It's 80, it's like 80 inches long. It's got one wheel in the back, two wheels in the front, and the two wheels are about 34 inches apart. I am sitting in, and there's many variations of this reactive adaptations. This guy is based in Crest Butte, Colorado. He makes, depending on your injury level. So I am, I have decent core strength. So being in a kneeling position is what I'm choosing to be in. Um, and I like, I like that because 
my hands are on the handlebars, just like I would be just like you are when you're biking. Like it feels kind of like a norm, more normal position. So I'm in a kneeling position and my chest is what gets saddle sore now um, because I'm leaning over on my chest. And when I'm leaning full heartedly on my chest, you then can put right below you are um, your pedals, a hand crank. So I reach down and I'm pedaling just like you are with your feet, but I'm pedaling with my arms. And then when I want to stop pedaling, I grab upwards towards the front handlebars. And then, yeah, for like downhill, you're just in regular hands on the handlebars, brakes and the brakes. Um, But that chest pad has a little bit of articulation. So when I'm cranking, if I come to a turn, if I'm cranking uphill, I can crank with one hand um, and put one hand on the handlebar and kind of like slightly lean toward inwards of the hill. And I can change that chest pad location and give a little bit of articulation to turn. But if it's a, if it's a sharp turn, then I just bring both hands up and turn like normal hand, uh, mountain bike style. What kind of challenges does this trike have over a trip? And you, you said you've ridden bikes, so you you'll know what are some of the challenges that you face on this bike that you don't with a traditional bike? I'd say the biggest challenge for this is the side slope of, well, there's so many, but the biggest thing is the side slope, like the camber. So because I'm in this kneeling position and I'm in this trike, yeah, this tripod, essentially, if the trail, like a lot of mountain biking trails here in Colorado, they're single track and the bench of the trail is not made for 36 inches wide. It's Mm -hmm. only made 20 inches wide. So that means one wheels uphill, one wheels downhill. Well, that means I'm leaning incredibly hard uphill to keep the trike from actually tipping over. And then the consequence is really high because if you're going to tip over, I'm just going to keep rolling down the slope. (laughs) So that is one of the bigger challenges I'd say in that device. And and then the trail width kind of, but like if it's metal, if it's, if you're not dealing with the huge side slope, like it's no big deal. Like I've gone back and done hall ranch up the rock garden and the little loop and like antelope, I think is called. And that the loop is great and it's narrow. And what can be difficult there is it's grassy and there's like hidden boulders for my wideness. So sometimes you're like trying to rip it downhill fast, but then you have to be mindful of like, Oh, there might be hidden boulders in the grass. Cause I can't see them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perspective. So when did, uh, I mean, it's one thing, right. To ride a bike on the road on some groomed trails, but the tour divide is you know, one of the most epic mountain bike trails, uh, in the world. When did you even get the idea that you wanted to, or even could tackle the tour divide or, or great divide trail? Well, I think it was in my brain because Justin had been doing, I think he had done it maybe a year or two before my injury. And so I had been, I'd been returning to biking slowly, um, because he had been returning to bike biking. He grew up biking and like kind of fell away from it. Same, same, like climbing kind of overtook our lives. And then in 2014, 2015, he started biking more. Um, so it was in my brain and Justin and I had been actually doing some mountain bike rides before my injury. So I had been biking again and then he got that bike and then he was really ramping up for it. And yeah, I just asked him, like, it seems like this is something because of that single track nature, like if it's super tight single track and has a lot of camber, that doesn't seem like it's doable, but this seems like it's pretty doable, dude. It's old for service roads. So that lit my brain up of like, this can go. 
And thanks to him. Yeah. Thanks to him. It, he gave me a lot of beta on like it, it could go. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, that's, I mean, that's great. And I'm so glad that that was put on your radar because in the adventure cycling world, it's it's a relatively easy ride per se. Mm-hmm. It's just long, mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's weather yeah. and you know bears and you know stuff like that. But I mean, it's it's not the Colorado Trail that's you know completely. It's just a, a I don't want to say a shit show. It's just very extremely challenging. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just a very challenging trail. This one is is doable, but you know, the Tour Divide is it does have snowy passes. You could get mud is a is a big thing, and <laughs> there's definitely some hike a bike sections on the Tour Divide as well. I mean, so it's it's it may be you know a little more doable, but it's still a very challenging ride. I guess my question here is what did you find to be the most challenging aspect of your ride this year? Yeah, we got lucky. We left. So I left because of a work commitment. I wasn't able to do the actual start date of the tour divide. Um, I was like maybe eight to 10 days behind, but that meant, and that was also during like the giant heat wave that was happening. So that meant there wasn't much snow. And obviously for me with legs that don't work anymore, hike a bike is just bike a bike bike a trike. (laughs) So the more technical, there was definitely a technical aspect uh, early on in Montana. That's where like on the maps anyway, when I was doing a lot of research, I was like, well, my, my biggest concern is Montana. Like that's where um, it seems like there's actually some single track, but it was still old forest service road. But this one section had a washout from, I think like from a slide, a winter slide. And it was definitely leaning and exposed, but I just asked my friend Joe, who was biking the whole thing with me to give me a spot on the back end. Cause the consequence again was like a thousand foot tumble. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was just like, just give me a spot on the back end, like in case I start tipping, but I'll just lean hard uphill. And it was literally 50 feet of that. And then I think lava, is that what it's called? Lava mountain. I've never done it. You, uh, <laughs> you've done I know, it. I have another name. There was one right before Fleecer Ridge. That it starts in the L and I feel like it's Lava Mountain or something. That was some super techie uphill, like so washed out, but I love that shit. Like that's where I really like, because it reminds me of climbing. Like it's this technical aspect. I love that shit. And yeah. And my friends, I was like, sorry, I'm moving so slow. And they're like, no, we're actually like, we're hiking behind you. We have to hike. (laughs) We're not biking up this shit. And this is awesome to watch you. Um, Yeah. You like literally (laughs) took my next question. My next question was about hike a bike and how you, so are you, it sounds like you're saying that what other cyclists that were with you had to hike a bike, you were able to clean those sections. Yes. I, well, one spot I needed to push down, like there were some fallen and it is in this lava mountain section or whatever. It's super rutted out. And there were some fallen trees that were like bald trees, like stuck in the ruts. And I did all of the section except for one. I needed a back wheel pivot to like, it was a pretty big, like bigger, I don't know, golly, like 12, 15 inch round log in the rut. And my, back tire like I was on it on it on it like balance beaming on the back tire and then it just slipped and skidded off and so my back tire caught between the log now and the giant ditch and I was just spinning out spinning out spinning out and so I just needed Joe to help me pivot my back tire back up on the log so I could continue like balance beaming my back tire along the log and get out of the rut. I can tell that you're really by the way you speak I can tell you get excited when there's a challenge. 
<laughs> I love that shit. Yeah. Yeah. I like yeah, that. Yeah. And that, that's what was important of this bike ride for me. Like this was the, like for me before, what was I doing all day, every day for job and for play? I was playing outside all day, yeah. every day. And this was, I'm three and a half years coming on four years of being injured. And this was the first time that I, I had 25 days outside all day, every day. What do you have to do? Nothing. Just ride your bike, figure it out. Yeah. It was huge mentally and physically. <laughs> Can you talk more about that? I mean, what, what was it like for you to be out there for 25 days uh, you you mentioned your friend Joe that that was with you riding with you. But I mean, listen, when we all when we go ride bikes, a lot of people do the tour to bike with a buddy. They do it in a group. I mean, it's just nice to have friends around. <laughs> so like, I mean, you were out there, you were doing the damn thing. How cool was that for you? What was that like? Oh my god, so amazing! A, I want to do it again and again and again because not like yes, because it's twenty five days of playing outside every day, but like the scenery, holy shit! Like Mo Montana, amazing. Parts of New Mexico, I was just blown away. Like the Gila Wilderness, what the fuck? God, yeah, Platero, like the southern part of Colorado. Oh my God, it was like just incredibly gorgeous and amazing. And it was, and it was definitely the type of adventure, like doing, like I, I akin it to the seven walls in seven days. Like I like doing the planning and the, um, that detailed bullshit in the beginning. It's a puzzle. Like, that's what we talk about a lot. It's it's a big puzzle and putting when we're talking about bike routes and stuff, it's like you have a huge puzzle and it's just the logistics. And I, I'm I'm with you. I nerd out. I'm putting on a, a three of almost four hundred mile race in like two weeks from now. And that's what I've been talking about a lot is is it's fun yeah. to have this map in front of you or this this project, this challenge, and and you create it. You know, you just it's a puzzle and you put it together. Yeah. And like the more work that you put in on the puzzle, like the more efficient you can be about the actual endeavor. A hundred percent. And with spinal cord injury, like every fucking day is one of those. And so it's it, like, especially like I'm bitching about having a spinal cord injury from the waist down. Like I have full function of my hands. Like imagine trying to take a piss when you can't feel you have to take a piss and you don't have hand function to help yourself take a piss. Like I'm fortunate. I'm very cognizant of that, but this, this injury in itself is, is its own realm of that from day to day. And so to put right. those two pieces together of like the joy of doing the puzzle and the hate of doing the puzzle yeah. of my life now, but trying to find a way that like, there's gotta be a way for me to still have this joy so let's use my experience of loving the navigation of these puzzle pieces and figure out how can I be more efficient in this spinal cord injury lifestyle to bring that joy back. And there was definitely a moment like somewhere where, I don't know, we were near the Tetons and I decided not to take a shit that morning because I didn't want to sit up like taking a shit. Now it takes me a half an hour. And so I brought this little toilet that I bought off of Amazon, like a little, like looks like a camp chair kind of thing. So it was raining this morning and I was like, I don't want to, I don't feel like sitting out in the rain for half an hour. So I can, I can go a day without taking a shit, but I had a big meal the night before and drank some whiskey. And so the body was like, yeah, whenever I drink booze the next morning, it's like, you should take shit. You got the whiskey shits. Yeah. But this morning I decided not to take the whiskey shits. Cause I can't feel if I have to take the whiskey shit. So I just went on the bike ride and then like, my legs do this spasming mechanism, which I fucking call the Britney Spears. Like my legs spread open. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm a weirdo. Uh, I like so it. my glute, my, 
my butt cheeks squeeze and makes my legs spread open. So I was on the bike in this kneeling position. And I could feel my legs like wanting to spread open, spread open, spread open. I was like, man, and I don't have that sense of smell. So I couldn't smell, wish it myself. So I just reached back and put my hand on my pants, not in my pants, on my pants. And it was warm. And I definitely had shot myself. And I hadn't done that since the hospital. Like, I don't shit myself on a day-to-day basis, but because I'm very diligent about when I take a shit every morning. Uh, and since I didn't this morning, I shot myself and it was still raining out. And that, that became, that that was like the most emotionally trying part of this oh trip. Oh my gosh. I can't, because you have your friend there to help you, right? Or Yeah. And like my other two friends were along, thankfully that day, my other two friends were along like driving support vehicle, like driving my van, which had like my extra batteries in it and my wheelchair in it. And they're lovely humans also. And like they, one of them also has some health issues. And so he was like, Quinn, I shit myself all the time. Like, no big deal. <laughs> so they, they turned on like, it, I'm with three like handsome dudes and they turned on TLC loud on the radio, on the speaker. And we're like dancing in the rain as I'm like trying to clean my the shit off myself and like cutting my pants off. Like, yeah. And I was like, that's kind of a beautiful story. I know. I was like, Thank you, gentlemen, for just being kind. <laughs> and everybody poops, reminding me that everybody poops. And sometimes even able bodied people shit themselves and they don't have a good excuse. I know. So <laughs> right. Like, dude, we would sit around the campfire as climbers, we would sit around the campfire and like tell the fucking when's the last time you shut yourself story. Yeah. And it was funny, but the first yeah, but now my perception of this injury, because I'm so worried about being a burden, this like my perception is very like much more boxed in i think <laughs> yeah i but i i totally relate to that especially again with the solo self-supported very capable going and doing things but i wonder you're getting to see a side of people that you probably didn't get to see before and a lot of probably people don't get to see and while it can be extremely humble humbling i teared up a little bit whenever you were telling that story i mean to me, it was more beautiful than gross that you have people <laughs> in your life that are that care about you that much. That's really nice. It is, yeah. It was especially needed. Like, thank you, thank you, gentlemen. <laughs> you talked earlier about, or just a minute ago, about just the overwhelming beauty that you experienced on the tour divide. And this was a question that I had going into this. I'm curious, as a, a rock climber who may spend, you know, a lot of I know that you y'all spend a lot of time working on routes. You don't just like go and climb it. You know, I mean, it's a whole process of you might learn a section, work on a ter- certain section for a while, or you might practice your pitches. Um, I mean, there's a lot mm-hmm. of different you know ways that you you prepare. But you're you're in one location, and you've seen a lot of different places. You've been to a lot of different places. But what was it like for you, and what has it been like for you to? you know, start to maybe become a cyclist and start to experience the world at a little bit different speed, seeing more of the terrain in a day than maybe you're typically used to. I don't know. Has that been an interesting, have you, is this something you've noticed or thought about at all? It is. And I think that's what I miss the most. Like, yes, I was a rock climber, but like, I think what, why I found that niche of speed climbing, uh, was because I, Sure. El Capitan was like probably the extreme example of what I was doing, but like I like seven walls in seven days is the best example. Like I wanted to cover as much ground as possible Mm. in the most efficient way. And so the hand cycle is allowing me that it's not as physically exerting as like, for instance, like I've run the rim to rim to rim of the Grand Canyon and was like trying to, and running on Concagua. Like I just wanted to like climbing was something I loved and gave 
and opened up the doors for more terrain to be available because I felt comfortable on exposed terrain or technical climbing. But I just loved moving across the earth. And this hand cycle and doing a tour divide was exactly that. Like where, ah, like I just looked online actually of somebody like piecemealing uh, like a tour divide of Europe together. And I was like, Mm, I don't want to go do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It opens up a whole new world. Yeah, that was kind of what I was interested in is um, did this experience put something back in you that was missing? It kind of filled in a gap where you're like, okay, I'm back, I'm doing it. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also ironic that like, right, yeah, exactly. Because I have now returned, like, as I said, when I moved here to Estes Park 15 years ago, I was biking a lot more than, climbing and there was definitely things that I wanted to return to that I didn't finish because I didn't clean the, the the technical aspect of the bike path or I wanted to just explore more and they kind of just like fell away because then climbing started consuming me but now being back here and biking again I'm like oh yeah I totally forgot I wanted to explore that oh yeah I wanted to do that and this and that and this and I'm like just funny that the irony of like I should have just like cut to the chase and fucked rock climbing and been <laughs> just a biker <laughs> do you do you mean that or are you just talking shit <laughs> no but I mean uh, kind of talking shit but at the same time like that being back biking with Justin when he did the tour divide I was like I think that I was gravitating towards that too I was like that could be a good combination. Like I'm good at endurance sports. I'm good at going all day, every day. Like that's something, had I not been injured, it's probably something I would have gravitated towards anyway. Like I was already gravitating towards these more like speed endeavor runs, like doing on Concagua and that kind of stuff. Like sure. Climbing was a skill and I would always rock climb, but I was, I think gravitating towards more the endurance things, which I was good at. Well, I think there's a ton of crossover. A lot of times when you, you know, we're talking about these types of sports, these more adventurous type sports that are conducted outdoors. The theme is the same. We just want to be outside. Mm -hmm. We want to be in nature and we want to experience it in, in a way that's meaningful to us. And I feel like, and I, I've, you've talked about Justin. I, I mean, I've had many people on the podcast who, you know, maybe they're in a period of rock climbing, maybe they go through running, maybe they come to cycling, but it's, it's, it's all the, the same thing. You just want to be outside. Mm -hmm. You want to be moving and you want to be pushing yourself, finding your limits and going out and fucking doing something with your life and not just sit on the couch and watching people on TV. Yeah. And sharing, I would say exactly all of those things. And for me, it was, it's also still really important to share those experiences with others. That's how the psychology of me is like, that's how we like expose the most, have the most meaningful conversations or expose the most vulnerable parts of ourselves is like, you can go and have a drink with your girlfriend and they're still not really going to tell you what's happening in their life. But next thing you know, you go on a hike and they're spewing out everything. <laughs> it just, it just, the brain is flowing. The body's flowing. Like to me, that's also a really important aspect of the moving outside is sharing those experiences with others. Yeah. 100%, which is why I have a podcast and, uh, I want everyone to have these types of experiences and, I think your story is powerful in that there's other people who have disabilities and, and want, maybe they see a YouTube video and they're, they feel like they can't do it or there's some type of limitation. And, you know, you are an example of breaking down. I mean, you broke down a barrier. I mean, it, you know, it was only a barrier in the same way that the speed record on El Cap was a barrier. It's just like no one had, 
really done it maybe. Right. Exactly. Like it was a low hanging fruit. Yeah. Low hanging. That's, that's okay. I'm going to take a little issue. Low hanging fruit. Yes. Nobody's ever done it, but I'm not going to let you uh, diminish your accomplishment like that. It's 2,500 miles, you know, from border to border across the, you know, continental divide. I mean, that is a truly epic accomplishment for any person ability or not, you know, I mean, I've never done it, you know, <laughs> let's go. Let's go backwards and then let's go finish to Canada. I want to do the Canada portion. Yeah, I know you do. And I read that you wanted to go on and do Baja Divide as well. So you're definitely not done. I also, when you were talking about that, I, I read uh, in the outside uh, article that came out that this was more than just like a personal accomplishment for you. This was more about being an example to other people. Can you talk about that? Because it, it's in vain with sharing your experiences. Yes. And that's something for sure. I struggled with uh, a bit before my injury. Like I was, you know, I did my first, I guess, take quote unquote accomplishment within 2012 for climbing. And I was like, as social media is developing. Um, and I just really struggled with finding comfort and, or finding a voice or something like it felt like you're bragging, felt like you're, you're not, you're, I don't know, like you're oversharing or that and people were lying. Like I, there, I know that people were lying, like saying that they had accomplished this. And like, I know that they hadn't. So I really struggled with that before. And, um, so it feels ironic now to be sharing so much of my life. I mean, especially right after injury, it was just really cathartic to find, to write and to find connection with humans out there who shared the same commiserated with what I was going through. But to now feel like, okay, I, I've definitely have a platform. There's people that follow me and to use this platform for education and good. Like I don't, I still don't want to brag and I, or it's hard for me to be proud of my accomplishments because they're not for you. They're for me. They're like, what can I do for me? But they have now become about us as a disabled community, educating people on what is available to them. Like people don't know that these hand cycles can be used in our national parks, for instance, like as hiking devices, if they're 36 inches or less. Um, so educating my community on that, but also people within the community don't know that they can use them, but therefore people outside the community don't know that they can look at them. So uh, trying to find the correct language. Like, yes, in this instance, I was biking a tour divide. So it is my bike, but it's also my mobility device. It is my wheelchair. Essentially it's my off-road wheelchair, but trying to advocate for like when I'm, I work with the national park service and I'm advocating for other experiences besides the one mile paved trail in the busiest part of our national parks. Like I too want a recreational exerting experience. I too want adventure. I too want not just a paved trail where there's a shit ton of people and I don't want paved trails everywhere, nor does this hand cycle need a paved trail anywhere. Like example, a, you guys were hiking your bike. I, I was biking my trike. I could get up it and you guys had to fucking get off your and get on your feet. Like these things are capable of amazing things. <laughs> I, you know, when I asked you that question, I was expecting the hike a bike in my mind. I was picturing I don't know. I, I didn't know how you were going to be able to do it. I really didn't have like an image. I just, I, I, I asked the question because I assumed that it was a huge undertaking for you to be able to maneuver that obstacle. But it turns out that, you know, your, um, your trike 
uh, was what broke down that barrier and allowed you to, you know, do something that uh, a, a cyclist couldn't do. And, and that leads me to my, my question about, I'm, I'm wondering if you could share for other people with disabilities, I mean, and, and just awareness in general, but, but obviously this trike is huge. I mean, the, you know, having a battery on there and, and having the tires and I mean, it's, it, it sounds so dialed. I mean, it's really cool that a person can do the tour divide on a trike. I mean, that's fucking awesome. So obviously mm -hmm. there's some really good advancements that are, are helping people access the outdoors. And uh, maybe if there's uh, there's some other examples, I'd love to hear what other resources are available um, to help people access the outdoors if they're disabled. But also maybe if you want to talk just a little bit about areas of improvement, uh, maybe where um, you'd like to see some improvement. Oh, I could go on that for days. Well, I know. but um, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so areas for folks who are disabled, um, you can, so like these machines are quite expensive and there's a lot of varieties of these machines out there. I've spoken to the one that I have is reactive adaptations out of Crested Butte. I also have another fantastic device um, called the Bowhead Reach and he is a manufacturer based out of Calgary. And I, that machine is like, so as an able-bodied human, I'd bike the slick rock trail way back in the day. And like, there was a good 10 to 15 parts in of that, that I definitely hiked. And I did the slick rock trail in the bowhead because the way the front end, like that side slope is not an issue with the bowhead. The way the front end articulates is incredible. It's a freaking Batmobile, but these devices are like 15 to $20,000. So there are lots of foundations out there that can help you like the high fives foundation, the Kelly brush foundation, challenged athletes foundation, Travis Roy. Um, there's lots of foundations that you can Google and find that help athletes with particularly with spinal cord injury. And I'm sure like I'm only on the realm of spinal cord injury, but I'm sure if you have a different disability, you could find a foundation that might be honed in on your foundation and returning you back to athletics. And as far as other people, that's what I wanted to mention. So this bike ride, I partnered with the Kelly brush foundation and I have a website quinbrett.com and there's a donate page. And so if you are not disabled and you have some extra cash, you can click on the donate page and it goes into this little honey pot. I've been calling it for Kelly brush foundation. And so any of your, any of your cash goes into this little honey pot and Kelly brush is one of those foundations that buys devices like this for individuals. But my honey pot is to eventually accrue enough to buy devices like this to put at or near national parks. I want these devices to be, because they're cumbersome to travel with. And if you have a disability, it's hard to travel as it is. So oh to gosh, have another yeah. 50 pound device, 80 inch long, 36 inch wide wheel, wheel device, that's a pain in the ass. So, but if we can get them at or near our national parks, then when you travel, you can look up the national park that maybe has one near you and borrow it and then go on a hike or go on a bike with your friend yeah, and family. I absolutely um, love that idea. Yeah. How freaking cool. I mean, really, I mean, zooming out a little bit, I wonder if there would be some governmental funding for a, a project like that in the future, private funding, government funding, but that sounds like a really good initiative. In that vein, in your experience, because obviously national parks typically wield vehicles, not permitted. Mm -hmm. um, this mm -hmm. is a, an exception to the rule. But with that said, we're talking about typically hiking trails. 
what has your experience been with how it converts to somebody who would be using a one of these trikes? Yeah, so that is my job. So as I I was a climbing ranger with the national parks, and then this lovely gentleman, uh, Bob Radcliffe, is the chief of outdoor recreation in our national parks. And he we met really early on in my injury, and he was like, "There's a job for you," <laughs> and by that he meant he created a job for me. So I am back with the National Park Service. I am DC based. So I'm not just with Rocky Mountain National Park. I'm with all 400 some national parks. Um, and I am in a tri-division role. So I'm with the wilderness division. I'm with the outdoor recreation division and I'm with the accessibility division. And my job is somehow I have found that I'm working in my passion again. Uh, so I am teaching people just that. So like the wilderness act does have a clause about wheelchairs. And it is, as I said earlier, like has to be one made, the device has to be made for a person specifically with a disability. So like these hand cycles, they're made for us Two, it has to be suitable in an indoor pedestrian area. And what that refers to, that's an archaic way of saying like, well, the door to get into a mall, for instance, ADA to get into the mall, the doorway is 36 inches wide. So that means the device should be 36 inches or less. It should have suitable tread, like that wouldn't wreck the tile or the wood floor in that mall. Uh, so like mountain bike tires, those are fine. And it shouldn't be gas powered. Battery powered, okay. So as long, as long as it meets those stipulations of being made specifically for us, 36 inches or less and not gas powered with not spikes on the tread, you can use that anywhere in wilderness that foot travel is allowed. And part of your job is to, I'm assuming here a little bit, but it would it be to make the trails more suitable for adaptive bikes like this? Like it, would you potentially identify an area and be like, oh, we could improve this? Yeah, exactly. Like in the National Park Service, for instance, like the extent you're supposed to build to the extent practicable, but because it's mostly our national parks are in wilderness and these crazy lands, like, yeah, we build our paved trail to the best that we can. So we offer that one experience, but then all the other trails, like, like extent practicable is very subjective. And so my, I, I guess my work is showing trail builders like we have a huge maintenance backlog in the national parks of working on our trails anyway so one my work is like showing folks like what these devices are capable of because they're not you, you don't know until right like you said like lot until lava mountain like we don't want paved like i can do 28 percent grade uphill pretty well and so showing them what is capable but more importantly like my baseline right now at the national parks is just getting trail information out there. So like way back in the day, we put, you know, a trail is easy, moderate, difficult. Well, that's not up to code anyway. Like the uh, department of justice passed that, like the trailhead information should include five things like cross slope, running slope, the width, the tread and the length. And our trailheads don't have that. And so I'm just trying to help assist the parks right now in giving that information because then the user can decide if that trail works for them or not. Right. Yeah. Give them the information. Yeah. Is there, other than your honeypot on your website, are there some other calls to action that people could help with particularly either uh, funding these types of projects or helping to build these types of trails or is it just all through the national parks? No, I would go locally, like go with your local trail building organization. Like you can volunteer your time. And, and most importantly, if you're going to come, if you're going to volunteer your time, reach out to a local adaptive sports organization and partner that like help 
be that bridge between the adaptive sports organization and that trail organization, because it really isn't like, if you are a hard ass single track user, you can go find your hard ass single track. And we can also make some trails more usable to all users. Like you can make them a little bit wider and you can take a couple of the obstacles away and it'll be exceptionally more usable to folks like myself. So I would say like people out there now, you can, yes, you can donate money to a local organization, but more importantly, like donate your time and donate your knowledge that you've gained from this podcast of that people need a few things. Like we need a little bit wider of a trail and some cognizance of the side slope. (laughs) Yeah. I appreciate that. No, I, I mean, I hope that this podcast will serve to reach other people who, um, have disabilities and, and could find some, I know you don't like the word inspiration, so I won't use the word inspiration, <laughs> but some uh, guidance and, and some, uh, uh, you know, an example of, of someone who's gone before, an example of somebody who's doing these types of things. So, yeah, I appreciate you sh- sharing your story. I hope that it reaches a lot of people. And I hope that additionally, you know, other people who are on the trails, if you're in the national parks and you see somebody on a, a trike and you're like, you shouldn't be here. Be like, no, motherfucker, you yeah. need to keep your mouth shut. <laughs> you know, I mean, just bringing awareness is is often good. It is. It's huge. Like I, I've been stealing from my buddy Roy of the, he has started the High Fives Foundation, which is one of those big funding organizations. He always says, lead with curiosity. Right. Like, you never know what people's deal is like why i mean so many people especially <laughs> i joke because i live near boulder colorado people are like well today's arm day i'm like right every day's arm day dude uh, <laughs> and i would like a t-shirt on the back that says something about that or fuck you or whatever uh but <laughs> that's not the nice way to go about it the nice way to go about it is to lead with curiosity and ask questions don't just assume that people are being assholes <laughs> Well, that's why I love podcasts, to be honest. I'm a highly curious person and um, I think people are fascinating, but it's always, I like to get to know people and, and really understand why they did something and, and also understand maybe the challenges. I, I appreciate your, just how honest you are and how raw you are about your experiences because those are the things that people can gravitate and relate to more than like you were saying with, you know, your Instagram post and being like showing off or whatever. It's like people are going to relate more and can take more away from overcoming challenges. And the, the other cool thing that I've found with the podcast and talking to, you know, elite level athletes or just people who have accomplished some pretty incredible things is they're all just people and they all have their struggles mm-hmm. and they all start from a similar place and you know you don't just wake up with this ability to climb rocks or cycle the tour divide (laughs) i mean it it just everybody's the same and everybody works hard and dedicates a lot of time and uh, they deal with their own struggles that come up and so i think for people when they understand that you know we're all just on this journey of life together and trying to figure it out i think that's like the most relatable thing you know it is and like yeah like mine is just now I have a very physically noticeable disability, but we all have our own disabilities and cruxes. And we're, yeah, we're all coping every day, all day and doing the best that we can. 100%. Well, I've taken up a little bit more time than I, I, I intended to, but um, I could talk to you for a while and I appreciate you sharing your story. 
before you go, I just was curious if you could, if you have any other, I mean, you fucking did it, right? Like you completed the tour <laughs> divide. So are you already scheming? You're obviously a very motivated person by big challenges and these puzzles. So are you scheming anything that you want to talk about? Honestly, not yet. Like I don't, I mean, I know that I want to do some more water sports. Like I want to do some like kayaking around the San Juans or Hawaii and just finding that tour to Europe. Uh, yeah. I yeah. don't know. There's too many adventures, not enough time. Hey, that's, I would think river sports would be an excellent, uh, opportunity for you. And I don't know if you're, I don't know. Have you ever heard of, uh, bike rafting? Yes. I have an alpaca raft and yes. they, <laughs> they super helped me out. Like she did a few modifications when she built it to like make the front of my raft a little bit bigger to put the wheelchair on. Yeah. But I think I need to get a two person raft. Like, right. Okay. Because my bike is the second person. <laughs> right. Yeah. I was trying to picture how it would work on a one person. I don't, I don't think that it would. It barely uh-huh. works with a regular bike, you know, like I remember the first, I just did my first trip, like I don't know, eight months ago or so. And, you know, logistically, if you're thinking about a five pound inflatable raft and then you're (laughs) going to throw like your bike and, you know, 50 or 60 pounds worth of gear. And then I'm a 190 pound dude. And, you know, going down a river, it's like, this is a terrible idea. But it turns out it's actually really fun and quite doable. It's amazing. Yeah. I would like to do some more of that. Actually, uh, we were scheming, a couple of friends are scheming, like going to Lake Powell, but I don't know. I just want to, yeah, I love my job. And obviously I'm very passionate about my job, but part of me, I just want to play all day every day. Can I just do that? Uh, if you could figure out a way I'm trying with the podcast, I'm like, if I could get paid to just talk to people about doing cool shit and then play all the time, that'd be, that'd be nice. Well, listen, Quinn, I, I appreciate the struggles that you've been through and how you, you just kept on fucking going, you know I mean? That's a, <laughs> it's, it's gotta be, I, I don't know. I, I haven't been through that, but, uh, it's gotta be tough. So I appreciate the example that you're setting for abled and non-abled people alike. And I appreciate you sharing your story with us. If, um, people want to check you out, follow along with your journeys and any future endeavors you have going on, what's the best way to keep up with you? Um, yeah, so you could find me at Instagram, probably the best Quindalina, Q-U-I-N-N-D-A-L-I-N-I-A <laughs> or quinbrett.com. And I would love to just leave on a note. Like I just appreciate what you just said of let's go play people. Like if you want to go bike ride with me, let's go on a bike ride. Ask me if you know somebody who's disabled or you just are and you're that is something you fear like take them out like people with disabilities want to go play too and community is huge for all of us so go find some more people in your community 100 all people on bikes or in the out honestly i always I, it's not just about bikes it really is about accessing the outdoors for me the bike mm-hmm. is my favorite way to access the outdoors but that's not the thing it's about getting outside and one thing that i hope with this platform is that we build a more inclusive for everybody outdoor space. And um, yeah, so I appreciate you sharing that. Good times. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Quinn. Well, uh, good luck with all your future endeavors. I'll be following along and um, I can't say it enough. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing your story. Okay, thanks, man. All right, peace out. Okay, folks, that is all for today's episode. I hope y'all are doing great out there in podcast land. 
over here in Bikes for Death land, I am stressing out because I got a bunch of folks coming to participate in this year's East Texas showdown and it is getting down to the wire. We're like two weeks away and things are ramping up and I'm just hoping for a good event. I think it's gonna be great, but lots of stuff going on. So that's keeping us pretty busy over here. And I guess in that vein, if you are registered for the this year's event, a quick reminder that we were we are doing the Facebook Live route overview and question and answer tomorrow, Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Time. So yeah, make sure to hop online, join us for that, and ask all your little questions. Let's see, what else do I have for y'all today? I guess a quick reminder, don't forget to check out that new affiliate link program that we have over at the Bikes for Death website. It's a great way to enjoy some shop therapy and support your favorite podcast. Okay, I think that's all I got today. Short and sweet, but before we go, just want to follow up with today's episode by reminding you that if you ever feel down and out, discouraged or you're feeling like you can't or don't want to go on a bike ride. Think about Quinn Brett, the challenges that she has faced and will continue to face probably for the rest of her life and how she doesn't find excuses to not participate, to not be an active member of this community and to go outside and ride her damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 